Hello, health scientists, and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Grant Tinsley. Grant is Assistant Professor and the Director of the Energy Balance and Body Composition Laboratory at Texas Tech University. His major research interests are body composition assessment techniques and the effects of intermittent fasting on health and performance. Intermittent fasting has become such a commonly heard term in the world of nutrition these last few years, and you wouldn't be blamed for thinking it can help with almost anything. Weight loss, muscle gain, health improvement, you name it, and there is probably someone claiming intermittent fasting can help. But the truth is, we don't have a huge amount of research on the effects of IF, and even with that, what we do, there are so many different ways to do IF that it's difficult to know what works. That's why I really wanted to speak with Grant Tinsley, as his lab has produced so much fantastic, high-quality research looking at the effects of IF on body composition, performance, and health. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it, because I know I learned so much from Grant. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share and spread news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it really helps to promote the podcast to more people, which encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in the podcast, please feel free to let them know about it and maybe they can get some benefit from it too. So on to this conversation with Grant, let's talk science. Hey, Richie. Hey, Grant. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am doing really, really good. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. I'm really, really looking forward uh, to chatting with you a little bit more about uh, your research. Thank you. No, I, I, it's a pleasure being on and glad we could find a good time for it. Absolutely. So I suppose the, just to start off, um, for anybody who, who might not be familiar with you or what you do, could you give us just a little bit of uh, an introduction to you, how you got into science and uh, your kind of career path up to now and what you're doing? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, I don't know if I've been asked before to go back all the way how I got into science, so I'll try to keep it somewhat brief. But um, yeah, so I've all, I'll start, actually, I'll kind of start at the beginning. Um, I've always, always loved school, always loved science. Um, my dad was an engineer. My mom was an occupational therapist. So I think I was a little bit inclined that way. Um, I also always loved writing. So, uh, these things kind of in hindsight, you can see how a love of science and love of writing sort of led me to, to academia, uh, in reading as well. But uh, entering uh, undergraduate work, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I ended up getting dual degrees in physiology and nutritional sciences. Uh, and those really just, you know, classes I was interested in. Um, I had become interested in lifting when I was in junior high. Um, I had a friend who was like unusually ripped for a junior high school student. And uh, it was kind of my first exposure to someone, a friend of mine who was like very, um, had an athletic physique. And I'm like, huh, like, can people look, people can look like that. So anyways, I got into lifting all this. So um, that interest sort of picked up even more. Uh, in college, I hadn't had ever lifted for sports teams or anything like that. So I was exposed to all these people with great knowledge of, uh, or pretty good knowledge of, you know, lifting, exercise, all this. So even though I wasn't for formally studying exercise at that point, uh, it was kind of a developing passion while I studied physiology and nutrition. So after that, I earned, I still wasn't quite sure where I was headed, um, but I earned my master's in biomedical sciences. And this was a lot of advanced anatomy and physiology 
Uh, I dissected cadavers for a year there, which was one of the most meaningful educational experiences I've ever had. Uh, and a little bit somber, we showed up the first day and they had the cadaver sitting there just on the table and they handed us essentially like scalpel and a spoon and they said, get started. So uh, that was just an amazing learning experience, definitely deepened my uh, love of the human body and wanting to understand the human body. Um, so from there, I, I kind of finally got to formally studying exercise-related topics, and I, I got my PhD in kinesiology and exercise nutrition. Uh, and I chose this program just because it kind of finally blended those two interests of the exercise side of things and the nutrition side of things um, formally in a program. So uh, when I started the PhD, I honestly didn't plan on going into academia. I more or less wanted to be a very well-qualified entrepreneur and do sort of health coaching, consulting, all of this. Um, but once I got involved in human research, I found that I just really loved it, um, loved the writing, loved getting into the data. Uh, and it just kind of led me here. This is my, my first faculty job. I'm an assistant professor at Texas Tech University uh, in the United States. And I've been here four and a half years now. I hope to be here long term. Uh, I direct a lab here, which is called the Energy Balance and Body Composition Laboratory. And we have about 11 students ranging from undergraduate students up through PhD students. And we do a lot of work combining nutritional or sports nutrition interventions with exercise programs, typically resistance training. So um, that's kind of the the short, long version of, of how I got into science. Um, what I think is really, really interesting about your background is that you've, you've clearly got, and it's actually, actually quite obvious from your Instagram as well, that you've got a love for lifting. Um, so you've got a, a love for, let's say, the, the practical aspects or the pr practical outputs of, of your research. Do you, do you think that gives you, um, let's say, uh, an added advantage when it comes to the academic side of things? Honestly, I think it does. And it's sort of interesting, um, even just as an anecdote, in sports nutrition classes I teach here, there's some, some students have a very strong academic background, but there's sort of a disconnect with the practical side of sports nutrition. And then there are some more or less gym bros, just people who have lifted, who, you know, know the gym talk and this and that, who, who pick up on things much more quickly because they've thought about things differently and they've sort of lived it for themselves. So I do think it helps. I think it helps us, you know, design, say, resistance training programs in our studies that are um, indicative of what's actually going on in the real world, how people actually lift, maybe how people actually eat all of this. So, no, I, I think it's great. And that idea of sort of bridging the gap from the, the practical applied side, how people are living it with the academic side is, is definitely something we're interested in here. Fantastic. So your, your specific area of research, well, you've, you've got quite um, uh, a few different kind of focuses of, of your own research, but one of those is looking at intermittent fasting. And hopefully we're going to get into a little bit more detail about what intermittent fasting exa is exactly. Um, but could you just tell me how your, your career path brought you to that specific area? Yes, I'd be happy to. So uh, my first doctoral advisor at Baylor University was uh, Dr. Paul Labounty. And a few years before I had gotten to Baylor, he led up a big project for the International Society of Sports Nutrition, which was essentially putting forth their position stand on meal frequency in active populations. And um, I believe that was published in the early 2010s, 2011, something like that. And it was sort of coming out of a time where prior to that, the common recommendations regarding meal frequency were that you had to eat very frequently, that you had to eat every couple hours to keep your metabolism high. Um, if you didn't eat something in the morning, your metabolism like wouldn't start in the morning, so to speak. And that pretty much for any goal, for fat loss, eat more frequent meals. For muscle gain, eat more frequent meals, <laughs> everything. That was the answer. So some of their conclusions they came to um, 
weren't saying, you know, high mill frequency is the worst, but it was, it was just saying there, there's not really a particular metabolic benefit that we can see. Um, it may not be necessary to eat these, these small frequent meals throughout the whole day. So that was sort of, um, not controversial at the time, but that was sort of a meaningful step away from being a slave to eating every couple hours. So I came in after that in more or less through discussions with him. We were sort of interested in the other end of the spectrum, be like, okay, so, you know, you don't have to eat six or nine meals a day. Uh, maybe you could eat three or four meals a day, but sort of the idea of how, how far would that go? If you were eating just a couple times a day, would that compromise your exercise adaptations or performance? Um, those, those types of questions kind of swing to the under, other end of the spectrum and saying, at what point would meal frequency definitely matter for active individuals? Uh, that's sort of what got, got me into this area and sort of our first, first pilot project was in that area. And it's, it sort of followed me since because there really wasn't anything out there um, at that time. And around the same time, I connected with Dr. Antonio Paoli from Italy and his lab has done some great work with time-restricted uh, feeding and I've been able to collaborate with him. So um, yeah, he and I connected very early on in this area and, and it's just sort of continued since then. It's funny how people kind of get into research. You, you don't necessarily mean to get into a specific field, but you somehow just fall into it with, with certain projects or with certain supervisors, uh, like in your case. But um, we are all very, very grateful that you did get into this field because it's something that people have a huge amount of interest in. Um, and I, I suppose before we actually get into the whole um, time-restricted feeding or the intermittent fasting side of things, I suppose it's kind of worth giving a little bit of due diligence to something that we look at in these studies, which is often body composition. So we're often looking at changes in muscle mass. We're looking at changes in fat mass. And another kind of focus of your own research is looking at uh, the differences in different techniques for measuring body composition. And I, I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of some of those more common techniques uh, and maybe some of the differences between them and maybe some of the, the pros and cons of, of each, if, that, if that's okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I won't be long on the background information, but I'll just give a small amount of relevant background information for body composition. Um, so one, from the big picture perspective, whenever we're assessing body composition in people who are alive, which is most of our research, uh, we're really only estimating. We, we can't truly measure what we want to measure um, there are a select couple labs in the world where where you can make an argument against that with with certain um, neutron activation techniques. But in general, we're just estimating um, every method we use has a number of assumptions involved. So sort of how accurate a method is, is how well it deals, um, how accurate these assumptions are and how well it deals with people who um, violate these assumptions. So all that all that's kind of broad. But Generally, most of the techniques we use, we collectively as human researchers, and most techniques that uh, listeners would probably be familiar with or have expo been exposed to, say, in fitness centers or something like that, most of these are called molecular-level techniques. So what they're trying to do is estimate the quantity, the mass of uh, molecules in the body, so often like all the fat molecules. That's what If we see fat mass, it's trying to estimate the mass of all the fat molecules in the body. Um, which understandably is a, is a difficult thing to do. The only reason I mention this is because I think there's a little bit of uh, confusion with terminology. I think people often think anatomically, which makes sense. So if they think fat mass, they'll, you know, like grab their subcutaneous fat and be like, oh, this is my fat mass. Um, they're, they're, con they're picturing something they can see, uh, which is almost right, but not, not quite right. So most of our techniques aren't actually assessing adipose tissue which would be the, the tissue, say, subcutaneously that you could grab or, you know, visceral adipose tissue around your organs. 
Uh, most of the techniques are estimating fat mass wherever it occurs. So that would include things like intramuscular triglycerides. That would include fat in any tissue anywhere. Um, so that that's one point of distinction. There are a few methods like magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, or CT scans where you can look at the actual tissues. So like skeletal muscle tissue, adipose tissue. But again, the vast majority, and I'll give examples here in a second, are looking at the molecular level. Uh, most of these techniques also use what's called a two-compartment model. So they take all your body mass and they say, okay, your body mass is one of two things. It's either fat mass, so it's fat molecules, or it's something else, fat-free mass. And that fat-free mass that we use includes everything that's not fat. So it includes water, it includes bone mineral, soft tissue mineral, protein, glycogen. It includes all these different things. So as you can guess, there there's some issues involved with just lumping all of those things together. So all that's background, caveats, and so on. So some of these molecular level two-compartment models, so again, most of the models we use would be things like density-based tests. So that'd be like the bod pod, if someone's used the bod pod, or underwater weighing, um, the dunk tank, kind of the classic dunk tank. You can also use things like skin folds or ultrasounds if you're looking at subcutaneous fat thicknesses at different sites. You can plug that into equation and ultimately get body density. So each of those techniques would be looking at body density. That's ultimately plugged into an equation that would predict something like body fat percentage. So percentage of your overall mass that is that, that it's estimating is made up of fat molecules. Um, another popular category are the impedance-based tests. So if you've ever had just a simple body fat scale, so just pretty much a normal scale with the little contact electrodes, little silver plates on there, and you step on, and it not only gives you your body mass, but a body fat percentage. That's kind of an example of a, of a lower-end impedance device. So it's sending small currents of electricity through your body. It's estimating how easily they travel through your body tissues and fluids. And then it's plugging that information into an equation to estimate your, your body composition. Um, so we have several of those devices in our lab, sort of higher-end ones that have um, more electrodes and more advanced uh, sort of measurement um, measurement algorithms under the hood and even just the hardware itself, how sensitive the sensors are. Um, I'll just give a couple other basic examples. One that we use in research a lot. So, you know, for readers that are familiar with research or look at some of the information you put out, Richie, if, if you dive into that, that nitty gritty sometimes would be DEXA or dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. Um, this is a pretty good single technique. You can look at total and segmental body composition. So you could look at things like visceral fat. You could look at the body composition of, the left arm as compared to the right leg. You can really separate things out there. Um, and then there are a number of really practical methods. So many people might not have access to these, but they, they have access to skinfold calipers, which I mentioned, or just flexible measuring tape or body mass scale. Uh, and on that end of the spectrum, we um, sort of collectively as a lab try to put out a little bit of information there as well as um, in terms of like what, what would be a good option if you don't have access to a research grade laboratory, how might you, estimate body composition and just how might you think about this or track this in a way that would be useful. Um, that was very, very broad on all of that, but are there, are there components in there you'd like to dive into more? There's, there's one thing I, I wanted to, I suppose it's kind of the, 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 the real question is if in an ideal world, in an ideal situation, if you could use any specific technique for all of your research, what would it be? Yeah, in an ideal world, um, I'll have to change the question a little bit. If I could use two techniques, I'd want to pair it together. So, uh, and we see this even at lower levels, even, um, again, even if you have skinfold calipers and flexible tape, th there's, there is merit in taking multiple different types of measurements. So what I would want to do for the whole body assessment, 
to look at the whole body, I want to use what's called a multi-compartment model. And this is essentially made by pulling some data from each of these individual devices I've mentioned. So you kind of take a device that's particularly good at one thing, you pull that information from it, you pull other information from another device. So what this would typically look like would be, say, getting the total volume, three-dimensional volume of the body. Uh, For that, we would use BodPod in our lab here. We would get the water content of the body using one of our more advanced bioimpedance techniques. So this technique uses about 250 different frequencies of currents that are passed very quickly through the body, and it can mathematically model the, the fluid volumes. Um, so we'd use that. We would get body mass from a calibrated scale, and then we'd also use a DEXA scanner to get bone mineral. And we'd essentially plug each of those inputs into an equation, and it would give us an estimate of body composition, total body, body composition. But it would be a lot more accurate than those any of those individual methods by itself because we sort of removed some of the really important assumptions based on um, the fat-free mass properties. So like I said, all those things that are lumped together in fat-free mass, if we use one of these multi-compartment models, we can kind of tease that out and allow individuals to be unique individuals instead of assuming they conform to a certain pattern. So that's what I'd want for the whole body. Multi-compartment model, generally a four-compartment model is what we'd use. Um, again, that's at the molecular level. So we're talking about molecules of the body. I would like to pair that with something at the actual tissue level. So something like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. Um, MRI paired with that would give us great information on skeletal muscle itself, adipose tissue itself. Uh, in our lab, we'll typically do the four compartment model, but we don't, we do have MRI on campus, but it's not um, accessible for every project. So we'll usually pair with ultrasound instead. So we'll take some ultrasound estimates of muscle thickness or muscle cross-sectional area. Uh, as well as subcutaneous uh, fat thickness. So uh, that would be my big picture answer. Multi-compartment model paired with something looking at actual tissues. I, I think that's uh, an ideal answer to give to, let's say, the keyboard warriors who are always complaining about the different, um, let's say, body composition analysis techniques that people use in different research projects. Say, oh, they should have done this, and they should have done that. Well, in an ideal world, we would have been able to do something like that. But there are, yeah. like, like you said there, it's, it's not as simple as saying just do DEXA or, you know, just do an ultrasound and get a, um, you know, a, a muscle thickness or something like that. There's, there's a lot to it, surprisingly. Yes. And a lot um, of money involved. I mean, lots of labs. It's, the equipment's expensive, so. <laughs> just out of curiosity, because I've never run one myself, but um, how long does a, a standard MRI scan take? To be honest, it, it depends a lot on um, how comprehensive you're being and how many sites you're looking at. So I have, I have something in development, hopefully using ours on, on campus here, but I haven't used ours on campus yet. So um, for the four compartment model, though, if we were to do each of those individual tests, it could be, if everything ran perfectly, it could be about 20 minutes or so um, to do each of the four individual tests that we would need for our four compartment model. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's a considerable amount of time when you think of it and then multiply that by however many participants you have in a study and then multiply that by two if you're doing it, you know, at, just at the beginning and at the end. So it's a, yes. a, lot, yeah. a lot of time investments and a lot of financial investment going into it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of setting us up for what you do. So th- that's how you look at changes in somebody's body composition over time or some of the ways that you can do it over time. But we obviously need to do, or you specifically do trials that look at different ways of changing body composition um, or, or different protocols that can affect that. And one of the main focuses of your research, as we mentioned earlier, is intermittent fasting. Um, now, intermittent fasting has become quite a buzzword, let's say in the, even in the last 10 years or so, but especially more in the, in the last five years or so. Um, 
But I get the impression that there's a lot of confusion as to what intermittent fasting is. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of help um, clarify some of the different terms involved in, in this, let's say, this big sphere of, of terms that is intermittent fasting. Yeah, I would love to. And um, I think the, I, I would call it a mistake, not with no ill will intended, but I think the thing that the possible mistake I see most often is that someone ascribes a very specific definition to the words intermittent fasting, which is a very broad concept. So it's very common to say like, oh, intermittent fasting is eating all of your calories in an eight hour period of time each day. And I would say that's a type of intermittent fasting, but intermittent fasting is a, is a broad concept. So from, if we're starting with a broad concept, intermittent fasting, it's related to another term that, um, you know, your, your listeners may be familiar with, which is intermittent energy restriction. And the, the whole idea here is kind of in contrast to normal dieting, which um, we would generally think of as daily or continuous energy restriction, where you're reducing energy intake each day of the week um, by a similar amount and generally maintaining a relatively normal meal frequency, whatever normal is. Um, so that would be kind of daily or continuous energy restriction. Intermittent energy restriction has some intermittent nature to it, like, like the term implies. So I view intermittent energy restriction as very broad, slightly less broad intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting programs include regularly occurring fasts that are longer than a normal overnight fast. Um, again, we get into this concept of what is normal. There is data. I know here in the U.S. there's data on what the median fasting time is, for example, uh, and a, a large portion of the population essentially eats from the time they wake up till the time they go to bed. So many, uh, I think the median fat feeding window I saw uh, most recently was about 15 hours where, you know, many individuals were essentially eating all, all day while they were awake. Um, so regularly occurring fast longer than a normal overnight period. Um, these programs are inherently focused on when you eat, not necessarily what you eat. And as a tangent, I think this is part of the reason for their popularity, because I think some of the diets that diets, some of the nutritional programs that focus very uh, closely on what you eat and things you don't eat, I think those can be more difficult for adherence um, and they can immediately turn off some people who are like, no, I couldn't eat that way, uh, which is fine. But I think many people can get on board with the idea of, oh, I'm changing when I eat, but I can still eat what I want. I could pair intermittent fasting with a high carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate diet, plant-based, keto carnivore, anything. Um, so I, I, I think that's part of the reason why it's popular is because it's focusing on when you eat, um, not, not what you eat inherently. So those are just a couple of broad concepts about intermittent fasting. Within intermittent fasting, how I would view the three main subtypes would be alternate day fasting, periodic fasting, and then time-restricted eating, also known as time-restricted feeding as that third subtype. Uh, and I'll define each of those, but I'll mention that there's not complete agreement on this. Uh, so I was on another call recently with, with two other um, researchers who have a lot of experience in this area. And even amongst us, there wasn't 100% agreement on this. Uh, you can look in the literature and see this. I had a peer reviewer relatively recently, uh, you know, submitted a, an article on this. And, you know, we've, we've done a lot of the early work in intermittent fasting and active populations. And they came back with very dogmatic comments saying time-restricted eating is not a form of intermittent fasting. These are different things. And you know, very aggressive about it. And we're like, okay, we beg to differ. Here are our <laughs> citations. But um, all that to say, it's not, not necessarily right or wrong. They're just different ways to conceptualize this. So alternate day fasting, like the name implies, is the, the strict definition of be eating every other day. So like you eat Monday, you eat Wednesday, you eat Friday, you're not eating Tuesday or Thursday. Um, so that would result in about 36 hour fasting periods. Um, some early work with this was relatively promising, but there was um, some potentially concerning loss of lean mass, 
And also, and this was in the general population without what I would call adequate protein intake and without an exercise stimulus. Um, And then also from a compliance perspective, some researchers thought maybe it'd be a good idea to, instead of have a complete fasting day, just have a very low calorie day in between these um, ad ad libitum or just, you know, unrestricted eating days. So most studies now have actually used modified alternate day fasting where there's normal eating one day or even eating a little bit above normal, above weight maintenance needs. And then a day of pretty severe restriction where you consume about 25% of your weight maintenance energy needs. And that just alternates back and forth indefinitely. Um, there's been a lot of work in this area. Uh, Krista Verity is a big researcher in this area who's done some really um, fantastic studies. Uh, the next form, periodic fasting, is relatively broad, um, but I'll mention a couple specific programs that people might be familiar with. So the Warrior Diet and the 5-2 Diet. Uh, sorry, not the Warrior Diet. Eat, Stop, Eat. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself to time-restricted eating. Um, eat, Stop, Eat and the 5-2 Diet are, are examples here. So periodic fasting would just be where you have a fast longer than an overnight fast that's occurring regularly. That could be as infrequently as once every few months. So some people will do like a prolonged fast, say 24, 36, 48 hours um, every couple months. Or this could be as frequently as about twice a week. So where you're almost up to an alternate fasting schedule where you're doing, say, a couple 24-hour fasts a week or something like that. Um, So periodic fasting, a little bit broad, but generally you're having a little bit longer fasts that occur, but not quite so frequently as alternate day fasting. And then lastly, time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding. Uh, again, some people think of this as a completely distinct entity, but I think it fits our general concepts of regularly occurring fast longer than overnight fast and the focus on when you eat, not what you eat. Uh, so this is the one that most people are familiar with. And again, this is where I see lots of people ascribe that, that really specific definition, but say this is all intermittent fasting. Uh, but this is essentially where you eat all your calories within a defined period of time each day. This can really range from 1 to 12 hours. Some people would say all your calories in 12 hours, that's just normal life. Like, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., something like that. Uh, But again, for some individuals, if you eat from, if you wake up early and eat from the time you wake up till the time you get to bed, even going down to 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day might be a restriction for some people. Uh, In contrast, there are some people who naturally just eat all their calories within a six to eight hour period of time each day. And they're not intentionally intermittent fasting. That's, that's just how they eat. Um, yeah, so last thing on that, again, it, it can vary a lot in how extreme it is. The most extreme version, I would say, would be OMAD or one meal a day, where people, like it sounds, eat essentially one meal a day. So that's what I'm calling the one-hour time-restricted eating is essentially one prolonged meal where, where someone just eats once a day would be sort of the most extreme. And again, the less extreme might not look extreme at all. It might just be, okay, I'm not eating extra late at night. I just stop eating at a sort of reasonable time, like 9 p.m. or something. Um, so that that's kind of the overview with with some detail, but I'm happy to chat about any of that more. So I, I suppose the, the main point coming from that is that within that, that whole general term of intermittent fasting, there's a huge variety of of different protocols that that somebody could employ, and I I think that can add to a lot of the confusion around intermittent fasting that exists within the literature because if you so when people talk about this like you said it's very very easy for people to just say oh this protocol looks at intermittent fasting um against you know a normal diet but you have to be very very specific and say well what type of intermittent fasting are we looking at here because you know we we might not be able to compare this paper with this paper here at all you know or they might they might not even constitute a body of evidence for a certain a certain diet in inverted commas. Uh, so it's it, it's definitely a, um, a a difficult term to look at because even looking at some of your papers, you've used different 
uh, fasting protocols as well, isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I suppose like that, that's just kind of a, a forerunner to what we're going to get into. You know, the, the, it's it's there's a lot of variety out there. But if if we kind of get down to the bones of it, why? Would somebody want to do intermittent fasting? Why? And if we if we kind of move away from because you did mention that it is easier for some people just to kind of to allow them to to still consume some of the foods foods that they enjoy. But why do you think uh, or, or what are some of the benefits that we get from intermittent fasting? Yeah, I think I think the majority. I'd say the major reasons people are interested in it are probably similar to a number of other dietary programs. So. Uh, Many individuals go into it with the um, with a very reasonable mindset, which is this might be an easier way for me to reduce calorie intake. Uh, and I would say that's fairly consistent with literature. That's a, a good way to view it until we have more um, information. I think because there's a lot of buzz about it, some people might get into it for um, weight loss independent benefits, which there may be some, but the, the evidence is just not very strong in humans yet. So there will be some weight loss dependent health benefits that you would see with similar with weight loss, you know, that, that could be um, elicited by other programs, whether that's improvement in blood lipids, reduction in inflammation, um, possibly hormonal changes and so on, but, but that are, they're weight loss dependent. Some of the interesting stuff that's starting come out a little bit and where some of the big questions lie would be, are there weight loss independent benefits that would make this a recommendation, even in the absence of energy restriction, even in the absence of weight loss. And there, there are some of those data in animal models and a few early glimpses of that into humans, but I'd say far from conclusive. So, uh, but with that said, you know, current buzzwords around intermittent fasting would be things like autophagy and people are like, Oh, autophagy, like this, you know, magical processes within my cells that will rejuvenate me and help me live to be a hundred years old at side note, longevity benefits have been shown in animals, incredibly difficult to study in humans. Um, so I think some people get into it um, with some of these maybe a little bit overstated health benefits in mind, um, which not saying those things couldn't be a possibility, but I think it would make it be more prudent. And some people do this to view this as, OK, this might be an easier way for me to restrict my calories, might be unique health benefits, might not. We don't don't really know at this point, but that probably shouldn't be the sole reason I'm doing this. Sorry, that's sort of a roundabout answer, I think, to your question. No, no, I, it, and it's, it's a good one because it kind of comes down to, to just that. You know, while there may be a lot of uh, assumed reasons or benefits for, for doing IF, um, you know, if somebody wants to do it for that, as long as they know that, you know, we don't have the evidence to say that, yes, it's doing that, we can say that, look, there's, there's some other benefits, and that may include weight loss or helping you to, to stick to a diet. And I, I suppose that that's something that's particularly important is that with – one of the potential benefits of uh, intermittent fasting is that it may help people to stick to a calorie deficit over time compared to, let's say, a continuous calorie um, continuous uh, calorie restriction. Um, and I'm just curious to to ask you if in a population that, let's say, just as a general population, not athletes, um, do you think that uh, intermittent fasting in whatever of it, you know, whatever kind of uh, modalities you look at it, is it something that is worth implementing more in, in the general population or investigating more as a way of helping people to eat, you know, eat less, lose a little bit of weight and potentially improve their body composition? 
Yeah, I think I think it's definitely at the point where it should be viewed. And if someone asked me to give like the one sentence summary of um, does intermittent fasting work for say weight loss and health improvement, I would say it's a viable but not inherently superior option for weight loss and health improvement. So because of that, and because we know um, you know obesity rates continue to rise in many um, parts of the world, we have pretty good data that it's not impossible but relatively difficult for people to maintain long-term adherence to daily calorie restriction and weight maintenance. Um, I think those things are justification, justification enough that groups and definitely individuals should be open to different ways of thinking about this. So that's, that's one thing, um, one way I'd recommend this, like there'd be some individuals who they're like, um, I get super angry if I don't eat breakfast. And if I haven't eaten in four hours, I want to punch someone and I feel ter- this and that all these clues. It's like, Oh yeah, maybe intermittent fasting is not a good I- idea for you. And then there are other people who's like, yeah, I eat breakfast because I'm supposed to, because I've been told it's the most important meal of the day, but I don't really want to eat it. I just like force something down that, you know, other clues where it's like, okay, maybe intermittent fasting broadly is, is a um, type of eating pattern that would work well for your goals. Maybe that's something you could try employing if you do have goals to say, reduce energy intake, intake or body mass or improve health in some way. So I would say it's definitely the point where it wouldn't be, um, crazy to, to do some, um, experimentation to just, see, is this something that is uh, useful to me? And that, that's really how I view it. It's a, it's a tool in the toolbox. For some people, it's the tool that they use and like, oh, this is the only tool I want to use from here on out because it allows me to not track calories, but manage my calorie intake. Um, it fits with my lifestyle, so on and so forth. And other individuals who try it and they're like, yeah, like and we see this in our studies also. We, we have some people who at the end of the study, they're like, this was hard at first for a couple of weeks and now it's really easy and I'm just going to keep doing this because it was really easy to do. And we have other individuals who are like, I'm going to eat breakfast every day for the rest of my life. I'm going to eat all day, every day for the rest of my life. I hated this. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of individual variability there, but I would say it's at the point where it would not be unwise to experiment with it. And I'd also say, going back to the idea of how, how different, um, certain programs can be, there are data at the group level that some forms are a little bit harder to adhere to. So, uh, going back to alternate day fasting and, and Krista Verity's great work there, they did a great year long trial, which is just incredible. And they ultimately saw no unique health benefits and higher dropout with modified alternate day fasting. So at the group level, that that was not encouraging. Um, With that said, there were probably some individual participants in this large study who did really well with the modified alternate day fasting and who may want to continue that. So these group level metrics can give us a clue of like overall, how do people view um, the difficulty of this program? But at the same time, I think there'll always be individuals who um, a particular program just, just works for them because it's, um, you know, simple because it takes some of the guesswork out of it. It's just, just easy for them. I think that really highlights the, the importance of doing things like an intention to treat and then a protocol analysis for anything. Yeah. Because like, you, yes. you know, you, you can just say, okay, look, we put 70 people onto this program, you know, at the end of it, like, uh, we got like, you know, 40 people who were able to stick it out, you know, but within those 40 people, they did really, really well. So for some yeah. people, it may work. But for others, it may be, you know, pure torture, um, which yeah. some of those fasting protocols could be. Um, th- that's that's in the, in the general population. And if we're talking about, you know, something like public health um, or just helping people kind of reduce their, their adiposity a little bit, fantastic. You know, that may be a really, really viable um, protocol. But one thing that you're doing in your research, which I think is really, really fascinating, is that you're working in, let's say, more athletic or trained populations. Um, and I, I think it's it's really really important to look at this because a lot of there's, there has been a lot of let's say buzz around intermittent fasting and using it 
in um, protocols where people are trying to gain gain weight, gain muscle specifically. I suppose to start off this part of the conversation, what would be the importance of meal timing or meal frequency when it comes to, let's say, either athletes or individuals who are specifically trying to, uh, to, to gain muscle mass? Why would those individuals, let's say, in theory, potentially want to eat a little bit more frequently? Yeah, so I think... I think if you're in a situation where you're wanting to gain weight, gain muscle, um, it can be done and we can get into the, the results if we want to um, later. You can increase lean mass, you can increase muscle thickness, performance, all of that on intermittent fasting program. But if that's your primary goal, you're kind of just making it more difficult on yourself. So particularly, it, it, I'm picturing this through the scenario of, say, a hard gainer, someone who wants to gain weight, wants to gain muscle, and it's relatively difficult for them to do so. Uh, you know, there is stuff floating around there that's like, oh, because of hormonal changes or because you'll be so much more sensitive to the anabolic stimulus, like you should fast and then eat a huge meal, this and that. We can see down the road if any of that pans out. But I would say at this point, you're, you're just making it more difficult for yourself. You're like, OK, I'm going to eat all my calories in a six hour period of time, but I'm also trying to gain a pound a week. And I have, you know, trouble gaining a pound a week, even when I'm eating a normal meal frequency. So I'd say from that from that perspective, if you're talking about weight gain. Sometimes. Um, you know, fullness is the issue. Other times with weight loss, we're like, oh, we're worried about hunger and like people, you know, feeling so hungry and this and that. Other times, if you're trying to gain weight, you have to deal with extreme fullness. So there, there could be definitely, I think, some benefits for eating more frequently, spreading out throughout the whole day. If, if muscle gain is your primary goal, you don't really want to leave and you're truly pursuing that, um, kind of with a singular mind. You wouldn't want to leave anything on the table, even if there's just, you know, um, a, a chance that it could be compromising any lean mass adaptation, which we generally haven't seen with adequate protein um, and calories. But again, if you're talking about muscle gain and weight gain, I, I personally wouldn't even consider it. And I think it would just be making your life more difficult. Mm, um, but if you try to explain that to some people on the, uh, on the interwebs, um, good luck because they don't want to hear that, that stuff. Yeah. Um, but like, so you have done research in this Feels specifically, um, and, and maybe not specifically looking at weight gain protocols, but you have looked at the effects of intermittent fasting on uh, muscle mass and fat mass in in trained lifters. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of a study that was uh, published last year that you did in, which was also very interesting because you did it in a female population. And I was wondering if you could, you could just tell us a little bit about the background behind that um, that, uh, that that study. Yes, yeah, I'd love to. So. Um, yeah, they're currently, to the best of my knowledge, just, just four studies of time-restricted eating in combination with resistance training in a controlled setting. So the caveat being there are some studies, um, particularly of Ramadan intermittent fasting, where you um, it's some interesting information, but it's relatively uncontrolled. It's, it's typically the four-week period of, of Ramadan. There are quite a few other lifestyle changes that, that make it very difficult to interpret that research to the broader population. But in terms of controlled trials, there are four studies that have been I'm fortunate enough to be involved in all of them. Um, two of those are ones that I sort of personally led and two were, were through um, collaboration. So this one in particular, we conducted right here in this building where I sit today at, at Texas Tech. Uh, and th this was an exciting trial because we we're essentially following up on a trial that um, Antonio Paoli had led in his lab in Italy. And that was looking at one of the most popular intermittent fasting forms, which is time-restricted eating or feeding, specifically with that eight-hour feeding period from about midday to the evening and then the 16-hour fasting period. Um, so we were doing that in resistance-trained females. Um, we actually had three groups. So there was a, a controlled diet group where they essentially, they needed to eat breakfast, and then they could eat normally throughout the rest of the day. There were two time-restricted eating groups that both ate from about noon to about 8 p.m. 
Uh, the final fasting window ended up being about seven and a half hours each day. Uh, one of those groups, we actually had supplementing with a, with a leucine metabolite, um, beta hydroxy, beta methylbutyrate during the fasting periods, just because there had been questions about potential increases in muscle protein breakdown in these short to moderate duration fasts. Um, and we had done some acute work with acute 24 hour fasts and HMB supplementation. Um, so we had that as another group, but, um, big picture, we put all these individuals on a eight week supervised resistance training program. So, you know, from down the hall where I sit here, I'd hear, you know, the trainers like, uh, encourage, strongly encouraging participants to, you know, keep up the intensity on their workouts, all this. It was a lot of fun. You could stroll through. It was a very, very fun environment. Um, you know, all these, all these women working out together, our trainers leading them through this. We assessed a variety of things, body composition, muscular performance, metabolism, some health markers, um, throughout this, this eight week intervention. So from the big picture perspective, um, all three groups had similar improvements in muscular performance, which we did a whole variety of assessments. So muscular strength, muscular endurance um, through repetitions to failure. We have a mechanical squat device where you can look at actual concentric and eccentric force production during the squat, um, as well as isometric force production and rate of force development. Um, we looked at vertical jump, all kinds of different variables there. Uh, they, they all improved notably. In terms of body composition, there were, there was no difference in the amount of fat free mass gained, um, via four compartment model in all three groups. So all three groups increased fat free mass. All three groups increased the muscle thickness of their, um, elbow flexors. So like biceps, brachii and, and brachialis and their knee extensors. Um, so big picture, our, our takeaway was, uh, and I should mention, we, we did employ protein supplementation. So we had a target of 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, um, per day for all these individuals. Um, and then in terms of the, and th this is just kind of a, a window into how difficult it is in the free living setting to really control calorie intake. The, the primary instruction was just about the, the feeding window. Um, we did metabolic testing and we were going to employ a slight deficit of about 250 calories per day below weight maintenance needs for the idea of promoting fat loss without having such a deficit that we would impair muscle gain. Um, but even with weighed dietary records, so we gave everyone a food scale. We um, did our best to communicate the instructions here, analyze these records. Um, this could have been underreporting. This could have been accurate reporting, but just eating differently on the days they tracked. But everyone came in below the target we had for them. So it's, it's really challenging in free living settings. Really, if you're outside of a metabolic ward where you're providing all of the calories, there's really no way you can absolutely know the calorie intake. So really, the main focus was on the timing. Um, but in terms of the big picture results, we, in conclusions, we concluded that consuming all your calories in a seven and a half period, seven and a half hour period of time each day, if you had sufficient protein and a sufficient resistance training stimulus, did not compromise the resistance training adaptations as compared to eating in about a 15 and a half hour period of time each day. Um, so more or less kind of additional support for this being a viable option in this population, which was resistance trained, but not elite. So these weren't um, competitive female powerlifters or physique athletes, but they were uh, resistance trained, had experience, um, and, and were able to continue to improve on the program. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of detail about that, that particular study. So uh, obviously, like you said, that there was a major limitation was just, you know, not being able to be 100% sure of, of what people were eating. But you can say that in, let's say, more of a free living setting, simply changing somebody's um, uh, eating uh, frequency to uh, a time restricted pattern, it didn't stop them from gaining muscle, and you know it, it, it didn't stop the beneficial body composition changes. So I think that's that's like some uh, very very decent evidence right there. Um, 
one, one thing that I'm always very, very curious about in any uh, study that uses uh, quote-unquote trained lifters is, um, you know, how trained they, they genuinely are. And that's not what I'm going to ask here, but I'm curious to ask what was their response to the, uh, the training protocol that you guys used? Um, did they find it particularly challenging or do you feel that it, it might have been, you know, I, I find for, for some studies, sometimes it's the first time that they've actually done a properly structured weight training program in their life. And then they, they start getting um, all of these, these gains. Yeah. So if you, um, that's a great question. And you can look, if you look at the paper, the magnitude of changes, there were definitely some individuals in there who were on the less trained, trained side who met inclusion criteria, but um, you know, whether it's due to form or just intent, a lot of it was related to intensity. So many of these individuals hadn't had a trainer kind of keeping them honest on things. So if, if we say you're trying to reach near muscular failure, right around muscular failure, uh, and a, and a, you know, experienced trainer sees that and they see someone putting down the weight beforehand. They're like, okay, if you hit the target rep range and you're saying that was close to failure, I don't think that's correct. You need to up the weight. We need to increase the intensity here. So I think there was a level of supervision because essentially like having a personal trainer on your, on your case all the time, there was a level of supervision that pushed um, many of the participants past where they, they probably naturally defaulted to on their own. Um, with that said, there were some individuals who were very trained coming into it. And we all, we just had to keep them on saying like, okay, don't train more than these three days a week. I know you normally like you want to train five days a week. Um, but you know, we, you know, we need you to stay on this program. So, um, there was some heterogeneity there. We tried to, um, you know, strike the right balance of, of having enough of a pool we could recruit from to be able to conduct this study while also not having complete newbies or just elite trainers. But of course, within that range, we limited it to, there was some variability, um, and I'd say that's true across our studies. So the study with the most trained individuals was sort of the similar study to this, but that we conducted in males in Antonio Paoli's lab. Uh, those individuals were, um, many of them were essentially natural bodybuilders. They had, I think the average resistance training years of experience was, I'd have to double check. I think it was in the six to eight years range. Um, they had body fat percentage of about 13% on DEXA with a BMI of like 28 point something. So overweight based on BMI plus low body fat percentage equals their muscular. Um, so that was the one where we had the most trained individuals. This one that we're talking about here in the resistance trained females was uh, more middle of the range. There was another one, um, one of my current doctoral students, uh, Matthew Stratton conducted as his master's project, at another university that was also in that um, trained, but not elite um, category. Actually, I have double checked. I might have misspoken. I have to, I might be mixing up my studies. I'd have to check on that for sure. Uh, and then there was one that the first one that I conducted where it was in recreationally active individuals. So, um, like, you know, not sedentary, but didn't follow a structured weight training program. So all that to say, we have sort of hit across the spectrum, but that's definitely a relevant consideration. And we, for example, in the study with very trained, uh, males, we didn't see them increase lean mass in this eight week program, which isn't surprising because they were likely relatively close to their, their peak. Um, at that point, whereas these other studies, um, the one we were just talking about in women in particular, if they um, were trained but not highly trained, they just have a little bit more more room to continue to improve. Um, so, and that's one of the problems with working with anybody who's a highly trained athlete is there's only so much further you can go. Um, I, I, another thing that I, I, I noticed, and I kind of want to touch on this before um, we, we uh, finish today, is that you've also worked uh, using TR, uh, sorry, um, using uh, intermittent fasting with uh, another type of athlete, and that's with cyclists. And you, you had a, a paper published very, very recently, um, which I found really, really interesting. Um, and I was wondering if you could just 
give us a quick overview of, of what you guys did in that, in that specific study um, with cyclists? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'm happy to give the overview. Um, this is another study that was a collaboration with Antonio Paoli in Italy. Um, he and his team have really good um, access and sort of buy-in from different um, gyms and training teams and facilities. So uh, that, that's part of the reason why we were able to recruit that relatively, you know, like very trained population for the, the resistance training study. In this study, uh, cyclists um, who would be considered elite cyclists were recruited from multiple different cycling teams in this involved coordination with the um, dietitians and nutritionists working with each team. Um, and they were essentially put on a, a similar time restricted eating program with that, you know, approximately eight hour period of time um, with a relatively controlled meal frequency also. Uh, so an advantage here is that in, in higher level athletes, you often have pretty, pretty good buy-in with compliance on, you know, if the, if the team nutritionist is saying you need to do these things, this will help you improve. This will help you be the best. There, there's a little more oversight in like your, uh, fingers in it a little bit more than if you're talking like general recreation active population and you're trying to sort of put them on a meal plan that they have to fall on their own. Um, I, my opinion is that you have, you have better buy-in sometimes with these true kind of athletic teams. So um, in, in that sense, there are kind of pros and cons of, of all the different, you know, ways you could do this. But in that sense, I view that as an advantage of the study. Um, from the big picture perspective, there, there, I won't go into all the details on the, um, the protocol and outcomes, but from the biggest picture, this, Without, um, yeah, without diving into all the nitty gritty, we essentially saw a reduction in body mass in the individuals following the time restricted eating program, which corresponded to an increase in their peak power output relative to, to body mass, which is an important metric for cyclists. Um, and just to clarify, there wasn't a inherent performance benefit of the time restricted eating. They were essentially able to maintain performance while reducing body mass. So that metric that's looked at relative to body mass improved. Uh, in both the resistance training study and this cyclist study that, that were both done in Italy, they looked at a variety of interesting um, health markers. In both those, they saw some uh, potential improvements in, in inflammation and some other health markers that uh, would potentially hint at a, a health benefit. We can't um, overinterpret too much that how, how that would truly affect someone who's otherwise very healthy and, and athletic, but, but some potentially promising changes in some of these, these health markers as well. And that's something that I found really, really interesting about that study is because besides all of the, the, the normal variables that you look at in this kind of study, you did look at um, immune function. And I'm just wondering, in, in these high-level athletes, why would immune function be of such importance? Yeah, so I'll mention, I'm, I'm no, um, no special expert in this area. I had one immunology class back in undergrad, but um, I think, you know, when you see very, very high training loads, um, and then of course, seasonality, like exposure to, um, different viruses and things, say even outside the pandemic, um, you, you could have some compromised immune function after, at these very high training loads, um, acutely and chronically. Um, and I won't speak to you too much beyond that because I don't want to, to butcher anything that my co-authors with more expertise in that area. Uh, put forth in the paper, but but big picture, this was just viewed as potentially relevant, either from a seasonality perspective, um, or also just because of the high training load experienced by these athletes. Um, and I see, I, I see some questions. I saw some questions pop up earlier that I probably uh, missed. Sorry, we we don't have to do the questions, but I saw a couple of questions pop up here. If, if you want to, if you want to touch on any of those questions, absolutely. Um, and just just while you're looking, one one I'll ask is um, uh, so obviously the big takeaway from this study is that you know, people, these, these athletes lost a little bit of body fat, lost a little bit of weight, which meant that their, you know, their power to weight um, uh, output was better. 
so at the end of the day, that is a potential performance enhancement right there. Um, and, and, and yes. That, yeah, and, and that's a big takeaway from this. Like, you know, this, this kind of a protocol can potentially help these athletes, whether it's just with helping them eat a little bit less. Um, um, I'm just looking at their diets, and you know, they were on 4,800 calories a day, which fitting into a, a, a shorter time window, that cannot be easy, but um, yeah. it's impressive nonetheless. Yeah, and I would say, I think we mentioned this in this paper, but but something that I think our team's generally on board with is that, the, the more elite athletes you get into and the more their performance truly matters, especially if that's their vocation um, or their you know passion, the, the probably the more and more skeptical you'd want to be. And we often view this um, both in the weight training study and I think here at the cyclist as well as, you know, like something that could be incorporated selectively or as part of a periodized program, not saying like, oh, you should always eat in a truncated window. Um, there may still be some very valid arguments based on more traditional sports nutrition guidelines for, um, for not doing something like that close to where you would need um, peak performance, unless you were, you know, maybe incorporating it with some intentional reductions in carbohydrate availability for, you know, some some metabolic adaptations relative to uh, muscle metabolism or, or something like that. But, um, but yeah, it was, I agree, it was, it was pretty, uh, we, we thought those were interesting data as well. Um, and then one other thing that I noticed that you found was that in, in that particular study, there was an interesting drop in um, testosterone and IGF-1, despite the fact that there, was, there wasn't any change in, in lean mass from what I remember. Um, could you speculate, speculate as to why that happened, or do you think that that might be an issue longer term? Uh, that's a great question. So we saw the same, you may you maybe know, we saw the same result essentially with those markers in the resistance training study um, with the same kind of comment that's like, okay, we, we saw reductions in these markers that didn't correspond to a decrease in um, lean mass in this, this duration of the study. Um, it could potentially be an issue longer term. Um, we have long-term data that are currently under review. That's actually a follow-up of the study in males that it continued out for a year. Uh, and we saw some of those hormonal changes persist and we saw some um, effects on body composition. So I'll, I'll definitely post about it when it's published, but just as a, as a preview that, yeah, the longer duration might, might have an effect. And that's something that we, we have sort of seen that we're excited to, to get out there soon. Um, some of it could be, it's a little hard to say again, it, it's hard when you can't, the cyclists would maybe had better, better control uh, in some ways on the dietary intake because of what I was mentioning earlier with, with sort of the dietitian involvement, even though we did have that in the weight training study as well. Um, but again, really hard outside of a metabolic chamber. It's very possible that just, even if it didn't show up in the dietary records that a reduction in energy intake caused those hormonal changes, um, it's also possible there's something inherent about the fasting that was causing reductions in um, testosterone or or IGF-1. Um, it's, it's a little hard to say definitively without complete dietary control. Um, but yeah, in terms of the short-term, long-term thing, we'll, we'll have some information coming out on that before, hopefully before too long, if the peer review doesn't take too long. Uh, which they always do, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, I would be very, very excited to, to read that research because I, I think at the end of the day, well, with, with, with anything to do with nutrition and sports training, we just need more time. We need longer duration studies where we can have a look at the, the long-term effects of certain protocols like this. So I'll be very, very excited um, to, to read it. Uh, Grant, I, I, I could literally, I could talk to you about this for hours um but i realized that you don't have hours available and you've been already too generous with your time and i really appreciate that but before before we end up i suppose i i'd like to ask um in your opinion and i know it's very very difficult to give a general statement on this 
Um, but for the average gym goer, let's say, uh, somebody who's just there to, to put on a little bit of muscle, um, maintain a, you know, a, a decent, let's say, level of, of body fat, um, is intermittent fasting something that they should definitely consider? Or is it just something that, you know, it, it's, it's something worth giving a try, but not something that you have too much faith in at the moment? How are, are you feeling about it from a... Uh, let's say, with based on your professional opinion, how do you feel about recommending it as an approach? Yeah, so for the population you described, kind of general gym goer wanting body composition improvements, um, say decent performance, all that, I would have a pretty similar like kind of one sentence summary that I had with the general population saying this is a viable option. Um, I would say, especially if you're being a little more aggressive on the fasting protocol, pay particular attention to protein intake. Um, some of our early work showed that with some of the more aggressive um, fasting periods, then in the, in the shortened feeding period, people tended to not consume enough protein to maximize adaptation. So, um, I would say it's definitely a viable option in that population. So I would say if it's, if kind of at face value, like this, this sounds like an eating schedule that would be reasonable to me for whichever form you're talking about. Um, I would say if you're curious, definitely worth a try. If, if you don't like it after a few weeks, there's no pressure to continue it. You're not missing out on something magical. Um, at the same time, people find, some people find it very easy, uh, even in people who aren't really inclined that way. So some of our participants have not been happy that they got randomized to a fasting group. Some of them, by the end of the trial, feel very differently and say, this is really easy. I would like to continue this. So I would say viewing it definitely as a viable option. Again, I think the benefits might be greatest for people who have a general nutritional awareness but don't necessarily want to track. And they're like, they want to, say, reduce calorie intake or just manage it, um, say, even maintain it without tracking. Uh, I, I think this is a reasonable strategy for people like that because it's relatively simple. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to eat during these times or during these windows, not during these windows. If that advice alone works for you, something that simple, um, more power to you. That, that's, a great, that's a great thing because you don't have to micromanage everything if that's how you're inclined. Um, but again, if you're not inclined that way, I'd certainly never tell someone, it's like, oh, you, you need to be doing this because there's something magical, really unique that you're missing out on at this point. Absolutely. And I suppose with, let's say, more elite uh, athletic populations, would it be fair enough to say that the jury is out as, as regards to intermittent fasting? Yeah, I would say the more elite you're talking about or the more like performance, especially say like sport performance or long duration performance, I would say the more elite you are, the more skeptical you should be. Um, not to say it can't be employed selectively. Again, it could be part of a train low strategy for people familiar with that. Um, concept from sports nutrition. Um, but I would yeah be increasingly skeptical and also use a milder form. So it, it wouldn't necessarily be anything wrong with saying like, okay, I have an endurance athlete who is having a little bit of trouble managing their weight and they eat from 5am till 10pm. It might be reasonable to say like, okay, you could truncate that a little bit, cut out like a maybe a late night snack if you don't need that for glycogen replenishment or something. Um, so there, there could be some very mild ways you could employ it too that, that could potentially benefit health or if you're trying to get a small reduction in body mass. Um, so it's not all or nothing. It's not like you're eating all day every day or you're fasting all day every day. There, there's a lot. There are very mild ways you could employ it if you saw a potential benefit there. Fantastic. It's uh, pretty clear. It's, it's not a, a black or black or white approach either way. Yeah. Um, Grant, this has been an absolutely spectacular conversation, and uh, I, I personally, I'm absolutely fascinated by this whole field, and I just want to say thank you for for giving me uh, so much time and so much of your expertise. Um, and just for anybody who may not be uh, following you. How can they follow you? What are the best ways to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, so here on Instagram, I guess it probably shows in the video. 
Um, my username is grant underscore Tinsley underscore PhD. Uh, in my profile has a link to my website, which just has some information about our research team, our lab equipment, um, sort of publications, some other activities I'm involved in. Um, so I'd say uh, I'm probably most active, I guess, on Instagram. I don't, I'm not like, I don't love social media as much as some people do, but I, I get on, I interact, I share about our research, our team, um, some lifting related content too. So I'd say, yeah, on Instagram, um, or you can get, get my email address off my, my website, which is linked in, in the Instagram bio. Um, those would probably be the best ways. Fantastic. And uh, Grant, we just want to say, look, thank you so much for put, doing this research in the first place. And like you said, putting out what you find onto your Instagram as well, because I think we need more reputable scientists putting out real research into basically the social media space, because unfortunately it's flooded with a lot of uh, misinformation. So it's great to, to have people like yourself, um, you know, uh, putting in their due, dil- due diligence when it comes to social media. So thank you very, very much. And no problem. Thank you- for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. I, I, I'll just apologize to the the people who ask questions. Do you want me to jump on those real quick or do you want to save them? Uh, we may run out of time. There was one that I thought was okay. particularly relevant, which was from Eric Bustillo, um, which was, uh, how can I deadlift and bench as much as Dr. Tinsley? Which I think is probably the most relevant question. But if, you, if, well, if there's one there that you want to get to, fire away. I'll tell Eric real quick. I mean, Eric has those nice flowing locks of hair. Um, it's kind of like a reverse Samson thing. If you shave off all those locks of hair, Eric, the strength will just like shoot up through the roof. So that's my answer. There you go. Um, and that's said by a real strength scientist right there. Folks, <laughs> uh, everybody's going to be shaving. Um, Grant, thank you again so much for your time and really, really looking forward to seeing your research output in the future. Thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.